0: You are now listening to episode 268 on University of Adversity.
1: You know, I, there's the odd day where you just, you need to crash on the couch and, but I, I've learned to, to cope with it. It doesn't you know work out, but I can you need to watch my heart rate. You well, know, if the heart rate gets too high, it's like, okay, um, I'll, I know I'm going to pay the price for a couple of days, but I've learned to, to, to cope with these symptoms now for, for eight years. And it doesn't, it doesn't slow down my life but i know so many people that it has and and that's where you know they can treat the concussion but they don't treat the you know the underlying issues those anxieties the the depressions and and it, it it's scary so much for me so much more work needs to be done um you know people in the hockey world they they just treat it as a business you know they want to win they want a product that wins And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter really who you are, except for a handful of of superstars. They're just going to find the next person.
0: Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What is up everybody? Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this is your first time at University of Adversity, welcome. All you regular listeners, welcome back. I appreciate all of you guys. If you guys are watching this on YouTube, please subscribe. If you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify, subscribe as well. It's really much appreciated. It helps the show grow. It helps the show stand out. And if you get value, please leave us a five-star review. Also sharing this with somebody that you feel needs it is also equally important, so that's much appreciated. You know, conversations like this, um, especially with what we're about to get through, get into about mental health and mental health and sports and all of that, it's really an eye-opener for a lot of people. And including myself, growing up playing sports, we didn't really... The funny thing is, is when it comes to concussions and it comes to getting hit in the head, you can't see it, right? So people don't see it as an injury that really matters like people want to be able to see it like if you have a cut or you're bleeding or your finger gets cut off or you're you know you get a high stick in the face you can see that and people respect that and if you have a broken arm and and then you can take the time off and you don't feel this sort of guilt but the problem is growing up if you get hit in the head and you you know you start to i don't know you get these different symptoms and they and we get into that like what symptoms come up but sometimes you can't see that in a person, right? So you're just expected to keep powering through. And it's really dangerous. And it's now, it's it's more of a co- topic of conversation in sports, especially, you know, in, in NHL hockey. Hockey in general, you know, I grew up and, you know, we fought, we were teenagers fighting bare fist against each other. And looking back now, it seems insane. I mean, I love the game and I wouldn't change it. But looking at t- us teenagers as being, you know, these kids with like, not we don't have fully developed brains yet. We're still young. We're still trying to figure it out. And then yet we're fighting grown men to get to, to make it to the team. And I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. It toughened me up. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, that's insane. And same with like how I grew up playing hockey. Headshots, you know, where you could hit somebody with their head down. That was okay. That was what we were told to do. A lot has changed now, obviously, because... Of the repercussions that concussions and head injuries have caused there's been a lot of suicides with with former nhl um, hockey enforcers people that were you know paid to fight for a living and it really messes with your head and you get enough of those headshots, you start to go through depression you start to get into these weird blackout spirals and we'll get into all of that with my next guest story but it's really important and this is something that i like to really Dive into more now, and I want to explore more of the professional athletes and what they put their bodies through, and the repercussions that come from that after. So that and and to really teach you guys like the importance of being cautious of head injuries and and what can happen from them, right? And you know, a lot of times your your career will end, and then you're stuck with this injury. So it doesn't really matter the amount of money that you make when you can't, you know, live your life the way you want to live it and spend time with your family without getting headaches and all that stuff so really serious situation and i'm glad i got to talk to this amazing dude Um, my next guest name is chris hyde a little bit about him he grew up in kamloops bc for all of you know kamloops is a small town in british columbia canada it's a great hockey town um it was like a turn like i actually grew up playing against chris we would go tournaments to Kamloops and that this town was like known as the hockey town that you always knew that you were going to go there and it was going to be a battle from like when we were kids till you're you know we're in junior there's always it's a a really the 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 interior the lore the the interior of bc always had a lot of good hockey players and um chris came from Kamloops so he found his love in the for the game early in hockey he was obviously a very big kid and and he was good at it so he left home at 16 to start his career in Spokane, Washington for the Western Hockey League team, Spokane Chiefs. That is also where I met him. He we were at the same camp when we were 15. He ended up obviously playing there for a while. I ended up not. I ended up not getting listed. And it's what's really interesting, too, is the coach at that back then, Mike Babcock, went on to later coach in the NHL for for some of the best teams and won a Stanley Cup 2008. He's won Olympic gold medals. So it's really cool to see Mike Babcock because I had an interview with him as well after the camp. He lied to me and said he was going to list me for the team, but he never did. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But (laughs) I've heard so many stories about this coach and you hear about it in the hockey world um, whenever you bring on ex-NHL players about him being a real hard ass. And Chris got into a little bit. But you can tell there was a lot of respect for Mike Babcock from Chris, which is is great because he probably taught him a lot. But it's really interesting just to see um, that we were able to both kind of be in the same training camp together. And, you know, I remember Chris being just incredible. But at 18, Chris was drafted by the Minnesota Wild in the third round and went on to play an 11-year professional career in North America and Europe. Chris's career ended with multiple concussions that put him in a pretty dark place for a few years, but has now found his new passion in coaching hockey and helping people build better mental health and just pretty much just improving their state of being. Chris currently resides in Regensburg, Germany with his wife and two kids. And he's doing doing some great stuff. He's got a new program called Under the Bucket, which is really, we'll get into, I'm not gonna kind of get into it now, but it's um, it's about these discussions. It's about building resiliency with players, with hockey players, with athletes. But what you hear is a lot of these things that we talk about are transferable to all areas in life. And what you learn as an athlete growing up, you learn a lot and you learn to really, um, that the skills that you learn are going to be the most valuable skills you'll ever learn. And when I was growing up playing in sports, I didn't really realize that until now. So. This is this is a great conversation for anybody that really is interested in what the world is like playing sports growing up at a high professional level, getting there, and what is expected of you. So without further ado, I know you guys will enjoy this episode. Again, if you get value from this and you think somebody needs to hear this within the sports community or mental health community, please share it and let them know that this is a resource for conversations like this. All right, without further ado, welcome Chris Hyde to the show. And here we go. Chris Hyde, welcome University of Adversity, brother. Good to see you again.
1: <laughs> Buddy, it's been a minute. Thanks a lot for having me. Obviously it's, uh, I haven't heard of your podcast for too long, but the the short time and the amount of episodes that I've listened to, I've definitely learned a lot. And, I'm a, and I can honestly say I'm a big fan now. It's, been, uh, it's awesome what you're doing. Yeah, good for you.
0: Thank you, brother. No, I appreciate it. And, you know, this is part of the mission is to really, you know, especially with the athletes and, you know, the hockey, hockey world is this is something that I really like to explore and get build more awareness to is, is the athletes and just like what you're doing too. And I always love when I, any of my hockey buddies or anybody are like, Oh, I was listening to your podcast. You know, it's actually a, it's like a real thing (laughs) because, because There's so many, so many people start things and they don't really take it seriously. And it takes a while to kind of build steam. So I remember like from my hockey team, a bunch of guys heard heard the Theo Fleury episode. That was was, Yeah. Was that your first one too? (laughs) I saw
1: it in in either your Instagram stories or something. I was like, really? Theo Fleury with Lance? I was like, I'm all in. And I went back and And obviously you want to hear those stories and it's just like, it's crazy from, you know, his story, for example, of what he went through to where he is now and clean up his life. And it's just, I was like, man, this is, this is awesome. Everyone needs to hear this. And to have a guy like that is, is, is top.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, the cool thing is, is like, he was probably one of the first guys to really sort of open up about, you know, to actually have the conversation and talk about what's going on inside their heads right like inside his past and open up and be vulnerable and you know not everybody went through the extent um <clears throat> that he went through but I feel like he got the conversation started a little bit big you know time.
1: yeah big time I mean you see players now um Robin Leonard for example has struggled with uh his mental health you know goalie in, in Las Vegas and, and an active player to actually step up and talk about you know depression anxiety um drug addiction whatever it may be is uh it's huge for the game i remember going up and playing and like that's the last thing you didn't want to show weakness you didn't want to show your coach that you know there was anything wrong with you and and but there was times even when i think back now that my career's over there was times i was just shaking my head like uh wondering what was wrong with me wondering why i had so much anxiety and fear but i was just like know, i gotta fight through this i gotta battle through this and and that part has changed a lot um
0: Mm. yeah well yeah man it's it's crazy because like any sort of weakness that we showed or any sort of anything that we showed was considered weakness yeah
1: anything not being able to like you know playing through injuries i i mean we'll dive into it in a little bit but playing through concussions yeah and and, you know no one's it's an invisible injury no one can see it no one can touch it But meanwhile, your head's all uh, messed up. You got uh, concentration, memory issues. You're you're in a black room for 16 hours a day. But your coach looks at an X-ray or a CT scan, and they're like, "Looks good to me." If you don't play, you're off the team. And you're like, "Man, I got a family. Like, I got to play." And that part has gotten a lot better. Like it's slowly over here in Europe. Like I'm in Germany right now, and. Uh, we're trying to make strides moving forward. They're about, I, I would say, 10 years behind Canada, U.S. in regards to proper rehab and, and getting the right treatments, but it's a work in progress. Um, at least they're realizing that it's an issue.
0: Yeah, and it's it's guys like yourself that are going to bring awareness to it in conversations like this, which are really important to have a big ripple effect. So, I um, all right, just to give everybody the context other than the intro. So, we we're with the same age. We grew up in the same, playing against each other. You know, back in we're both eighty threes. You grew up in Kamloops. I was born and raised in Edmonton, but grew to, moved to the island, Vancouver Island, Victoria. And I remember playing against you as a kid. And I remember you were always a big kid and very, very good hockey player. So I would love if you could kind of walk us through a bit of your journey. You know, start where you feel is necessary. Cause I really like to hear about you know your, the, cause I know how hard it was for me growing up and tra- going into junior, and that whole world was a mind fuck in itself. And, yeah. And walk us through a bit of your journey, brother, and and kind of how you got to where you are today.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's a bit of a. So, anyways, I got two brothers, and I was the only active like athlete in the family. I was four years old. My mom was like. You know, enough with the with the cartoons, we're going to sign you up for hockey. And, you know, I grew up sitting on my dad's lap when I was and watching Hockey Night in Canada. And he was a Habs fan, um, Montreal Canadiens fan. And I kind of had the bug. And we signed up with my my neighbor to uh, for a learn to skate in Kamloops. And I went out there. And you know how they have those little, like, uh, things you can hold on to to help you, you know, skate around. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I fell, like, six times but I had like this smile on my face and I was like, I was addicted. And um, so I begged my parents to uh, put me into the minor hockey system. And like you said, I was this big kid. I was a monster uh, growing up and I always found that the minor hockey system for me was, it came easy for one. Like I, I did have some talent and two, I, I looked like I was two years older. There's like this team picture that I have. We had like Philadelphia Flyers jerseys and you know, big logo on the front and, and, The local jerseys from the house club, they didn't fit. So I had to get just a second jersey in the same colors. I was this big kid. And then, yeah, I started getting, I'd say around 13, 14, we were playing some spring league. And uh, I started getting noticed from, you know, scouts who talked to my dad. I'm like, what is this all about? And then, uh, you know, I grew up in Kamloops. And it is a big hockey city. They got the Kamloops Blazers and, and Western Hockey League. And that was kind of my, it was Western Hockey League or nothing at that point. Yeah. That's what I didn't know if I was ever going to play, but it was always my dream. And then, what was it? Uh, first year Bantam was the draft year, and I was taken,
0: we would have been 15, I think. Yeah,
1: years old, and I was taken by the Spokane Chiefs in the third round, and I was pumped. And, well, I remember Mike Babcock was the coach at that time, and he was coming through town. And I was fortunate enough at 15 to play one game against the Blazers. And I was just like, I was blown away in awe how fast it was. And, and you know, this is before Babs got big as a coach and before he went on to win Olympics and, and Stanley Cups and whatnot. But um, that's where I realized that uh, this is what I want to do. And when I turned 16, um, you know, I was in contact with Spokane the entire time. And they basically said, prepare yourself to be here for the whole season. And, you know, 16 year old that summer I was, uh, my car was packed and I could not wait to get down there. And I think I even went down like a week and a half before I was supposed to. And they turned me around at the border because of, I had the letter saying I was going to Spokane Chiefs camp and they're just like, well, it doesn't start for two weeks. I'm just like, yeah, I just want to go there. Like, but we ended up getting through. And um, Yeah, that the rest was, I mean, I'd even say the transition into junior hockey was good. Um, you know, Mike Babcock was—I had him for one year, and he was an intimidating man. Um, yes. And you know, I'd come in to the room one day into the locker room. And you have to go past his office, and I'd be like, "Okay, what kind of mood's he in? What, how do I react? You know, like what do I do?" And he came in. He's like, Hider, how's it going?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm okay." And he's like, you're not okay. You're good. You're fucking good. I'm like, okay. And then the next few week weeks later, I had like, a, I don't know, a strained groin or something. And uh, he's like, Hyder, how are you? I'm like, I'm fucking great. And he's like, no, you're fucking injured. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, how do I behave? And he, but of all my coaches, he was the one coach that made me grow up um, from being a kid to learn how to be, you know, somewhat of a pro how to take care of myself, how to be on time, how to be a professional. And, and for that, I'm grateful. And my assistant coach for those three years too, were, were Bill Peters. Obviously Bill has had uh, an interesting career. Um, but from my time with Bill, he was a, uh, he was a great mentor. Someone you can always talk to very open with, and they did a great job. The city of Spokane, the, the entire organization were, were fantastic for my development and, after my second year, um, I got rated or ranked for the NHL draft. Things were kind of going as normal, um, kind of climbing up the ladder, and and always that window was like I'm playing in the NHL, I'm playing in the NHL, and and I was luckily, uh, uh, I was yeah lucky enough to get drafted in way back in 2001 by the Minnesota Wild in the third round, and what I tell players now is like, when you get drafted, that's the easy part. And then, you know, after you get drafted, that's the hard part. And uh, I thought at that point, I'm like, Oh, third round draft pick, uh, signed a contract a year and a half later. I'm like, I'm on my way. And that's when things got pretty difficult. I found, you know, so I went to the Minnesota's camp, had a good camp, played one exhibition game, got sent down to their minor team in the American hockey league for in Houston. And I, that's kind of what I expected. I didn't come in thinking I was going to go make the big club, but I was like, this is a year to grow. And my next coach was Todd McClellan. He's coaching right now in, uh, in Los Angeles. And yeah. the same thing, like just a, a great coach demanding, but like, you know, you can also talk to him. And, and he was great with the players. He let us have our fun, you know, have, our, have a few beers now and then. And, and it was great for my development. And then towards the end, end of the year, I, I, Ended up breaking my ankle, and it uh, kind of set me off for the year. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go back, have a, a good off season, get in shape, and uh, just kind of figure this all out. And that year was the lockout, and we had so my second year pro, I was down in Houston. The NHL was locked out, so we had a combined affiliate with the Dallas Stars and the Minnesota Wild, which meant we had basically an NHL team. So when you're a young defenseman, I mean, we had Brent Burns on the team, we had Mike Smith, we had uh, Todd Reardon, who's you know, he just got uh, canned in Washington as a head coach, but we, John Erskine, like the, the, the list goes on. And yeah. Cause everybody to like,
0: had to get pushed down. Like all the, yeah, I remember that year. I remember those
1: guys entry level deals. And, and I'm just like, okay, like there's six NHL defensemen and I'm number seven. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting better. Things aren't going well. And, that was kind of the first little bit of adversity or doubt that I had in my game. Cause I come in and see these guys. I was like, man, these guys are, they're, they're good. They're like so much better. And that was kind of where I saw that transition from, from junior to pro uh, or even from pro the American hockey league to the NHL um, where you really see that difference. And um, that season I ended up, uh, I was working out and I ended up cracking one of the vertebrae in my lower back. So it just happened to uh, you know I was sitting around not playing a whole lot and uh, you, you kind of see your your confidence dip and and then it even got a it got worse after that season. Um, it was probably a two or three weeks before main camp. Uh, I had a three-year contract, so it was the third year going to to main camp, and I was playing ball hockey back in Kamloops with my friends and uh, ended up stepping on one of those orange balls mm. and. St- and they basically sent me right down to the coast. Um, they weren't happy. Um, I called my agent. I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And he's like, tell them the truth. And I think maybe we could have lied <laughs> to just make something else up. But they weren't happy with it. And they sent me down to the coast. But, I mean, I must say, I just I got back to playing in the coast. I was down in Pensacola living on the beach. We had a young team. And I, I got that kind of zest for the game back, that love for the game go to the rink, you know, we weren't very good. Um, I was the captain, so I was kind of in charge of this young group. But, you know, we found ourselves, like, losing a lot, but we'd all go to the to the beach and, uh, you know, have a few beers after practice. And uh, I kind of found that love for the game again. But I kind of got shipped around my last year on my contract. I played on four different teams. I was two teams in the American Hockey League, two teams in the East Coast Hockey League, um, Florida, California, Ohio. And I was like, man, I just need some stability. What are my options? So I was three years instead of, I thought by my third year, I'm going to be like, you know, trying to get a a regular spot with the big club in Minnesota. And before you know what, I'm in the East coast. And to make it from the East coast back up to the NHL is uh, it's pretty tough. Um, Guys do it good for them. But I was, uh, I was not in a situation at that point. And, I believe I did have a contract offer like a two-way deal after my three years um, with another club but that's when um, I started looking all right away over at Europe and my dad was born in Germany and I had a German passport so I'm German-Canadian and um, I was fortunate enough to uh, get a deal in Berlin. And Berlin. I knew, like, honestly, I knew the name. I didn't know nothing about it. I didn't realize that it's a town of uh, or a city of you know six, seven million people. And great it's, city. Uh,
0: it's great. Crazy, crazy city.
1: it's Unbelievable. There's like <laughs> east, west. Um, I was, you know, they they dropped me off at the airport and they hand me. It was my first time driving a manual, and they said, "Okay, here's your place. It's seven kilometers away. Here's your car. Uh, here's a map." This is before like you know iPhones and navvies and stuff and there's like, good luck. It took me an hour and a half. I stalled like 150 times. And,
0: what year and then, was this just for perspective?
1: This was going back to, what was it 06?
0: Ah, I was, that's the year I went to Berlin. I did a Europe trip that year. It's crazy. It's funny.
1: I was so lonely. You should have came over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was unbelievable. I, so I, was, I was dating this girl from Texas at the time. We were doing the long distance stuff and uh, she was going to Texas A&M and we ended, I ended up buying a house there. And probably two or three weeks after being in, uh, in Berlin, we would go through a big breakup. And so I was in Berlin. I wasn't happy. As soon as I got to the rink, my coach there was Pierre Paget, another famous hockey guru. Um, mm-hmm. all, everywhere over here in Europe, he's been a big part of like Red Bull Academy and whatnot. And I get to the rink for my first day of practice in Berlin. He's like, I don't know who you are. I don't want you. I want a guy with a thousand NHL games. It's going to be a long year. And I was like, Oh great. Like, what am I getting myself into? What? Yeah. And I was like, Oh, well, good. Welcome. And we had an older team and um, I just like, I'm, I was more of a stay at home defenseman type. And it was when I first got to, to Europe or into Germany, you were allowed to dress like, I forget some crazy amount, 23 players. And I was playing like fifth line, left wing, two shifts a game. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, this is no fun.
0: What was going through your head at that time? Because man, your confidence has got to be getting low.
1: It's low. And like, I was like, I was thinking like, I'm going to come to Germany. Like I just played in probably the, the second best league in the world. Maybe the third, you know, the KHL is probably up there anyways, from a, a good league. And I was thinking like Germany, no one's really heard of Germany. And I go there and it's a, it's an older league at the time. And I'm sitting there like, you know, there was a lot of families a lot of guys would go to do stuff with their families and i'd go back home and kind of just sit in my apartment by myself or go down to like you know the city and and go shopping or even w- i went and watch movies by myself and it wasn't like a team atmosphere mm. i just had a, a real tough time kind of fitting in and that was kind of the first roadblock and i was like you know i for, over in europe anyways and i was you know i was calling my parents and like what do i do do i come home or and At the time, um, I was just talking to guys on the team, and I was like, I just want to play. Like, I just want to go have fun and play. It doesn't need to be this league. It doesn't need to be anything. And and so I got there in in August, or maybe early September. And in November, I got my contract switched over to a team in Regensburg um, in the second league. Mm. And as soon as I got here, it was completely different. It was like my time in in East Coast League in in Pensacola. And I just, we had a great group of guys, a young team, like every Tuesday we'd have like a locker room party and we'd all go to the city and have a good time. Um, You know, it really helped get over my my breakup at that time. And literally two weeks later, I met my wife, (laughs) like not planned so that uh, I, I thought, one year in Germany, go back to North America and try it out. Then I, I met my wife and, um, I was like, ah, maybe another year. I'm having so much fun. Um, let's play it out. And then, so I ended up staying for the first two years in the second league over in, in Germany and, and I had a good, great time. I had some success personally. Um, not so much the team wise. And then I worked my way back up into the DEL to become a regular and I signed a contract with Krefeld um, another team close to Dusseldorf in Germany had a a good season. And then after that year, I I went to a town called Augsburg and that's when, you know, the success for me really, like it was the, I never won playing hockey, but it was the most success I ever had. We were this low budget team that kind of snuck into the playoffs and uh, we ended up losing in the finals. And it was the, this team's been around for 115, 120 years and they've never won. And that's the, the, the most success they ever had so you can just imagine the town of you know 200 250,000 people doing a full parade around the town for a loser <laughs> and they had like the main square they gave us a key to the city there was 15 20,000 people in the main square uh partying because we lost and that was probably one of my biggest highlights as a player <laughs> You're just hilarious like, yeah but you know it's just it's almost like that thing like the participation award that they're giving to kids these days. It's like, we lost, we, we shouldn't be partying like this. I stayed in Augsburg for two years and that's towards my, my second year is when things started going sideways with my health. I remember going to a, a practice, uh, my second season. So I'm looking back in 2010, 2011 in Augsburg. And I was talking to my coach on the ice. And I'm like, I don't feel good. Like I just feel dizzy. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is from. And and I get home and I collapsed at home. Like I just fell down. My wife was like, okay, you're going to the hospital. And I kind of blacked out for a few minutes or a few seconds and we went to the hospital and I ended up, I was in and out of the hospital at that point for probably over the course of two weeks, I spent about seven, eight days at the hospital and um I had some nerve issues. In my ear and no one really knows where they came from but they they started playing a role in my game and I'd always feel like a little bit dizzy on the ice and then the next year I switched teams you know obviously I came back and my play was not very very good and I wasn't feeling comfortable about my game but I moved to another team called Ingolstadt and um just down the road from Augsburg and, and it's only about 45 minutes from my where I'm living now in Regensburg and I got kind of back to back uh concussions in a matter of four days. And that's when it got real bad. So I took one hit in the game and then we had Christmas. And it's a it's a ritual or tradition in Germany that you play also on the 26th. Um so on the 26th I took another hit and I just went black. And at that point we just found out that like my wife was pregnant. Uh we were having a first daughter and I was in a dark room, 16 hours a day. Um, I lost vision in one eye, like I have really good vision. Like like I always say, I can see like a matchstick on a mountain. And uh, my one eye was like 160% good. My other eye was at like 90, but like they were playing off each other that I couldn't even see. And I was like irritable. I was just crying for no reason at all. Um, Literally laying in bed, wasn't able to do nothing. And um, we just had two at that time, our daughter, and I couldn't even help, you know, any any cry for my daughter would just, I would just be losing my mind. And um, obviously I'd go see doctors and I would go see, you know, do the, the MRIs and the CT scans. And they're saying everything is fine. Everything looks good. Your bone structure is fine. And I was like, what do I do? Uh, like, I, I don't feel fine. And then I started spending, out of my own pocket, um, over, the, over the course of my concussions, it probably cost me over six figures for sure, um, just finding my own help. And I was you know, Chinese doctors, and then you kind of tick one box and get a little bit better. And then, uh, you know, finding internal doctors, homeopathic doctors, um, and I got into meditation at that time. And that was one of the few things that kind of calmed me down at night. And after 10 weeks of kind of laying in bed all day and and I said, I got to the ring, and I was like, I still don't feel ready. And my coach is like, well, yeah, if you're not playing, you're off the team. And I was like, okay, I got a family. I got a young kid. I ended up playing 17 games and I don't remember. I don't remember where we played, who we played. Um, I remember I fought once because there's a video of it. And after the season end, I I lost my short-term memory for a year. And so that part was pretty like pretty crazy. And that summer, you know, I had a two-year contract in Ingolstadt, and in the summers we'd always get head back to to Kamloops, and we still had a place there. And you know, I trained with my buddies, and it was the first time I was just like, I don't feel right. Like I'd be so happy just to say like enough is enough with hockey. Let's figure out the next thing. And I just continued, you know. Uh, to do my meditation and stuff but like the the build-up of uh, the playoffs it really wiped me out and at that time too I went through a complete burnout like adrenal fatigue I don't know if you know what that is but it's basically like you and you can't even like do anything and it was just like a, a reaction from concussions to stress to whatever and um, like my wife and I we'd always you know drop the drop our daughter off with the grandparents and we'd take off on a holiday and we'd always for some reason we'd go to when well, I'm not even a gambler but we go to Las Vegas and I remember just sitting by the pool and having like a panic attack wow. and, and that was like the first first time like yeah, dealing with with panic now and I was like so I had anxiety I was depressed I had panic and my wife was like you need a shot of vodka or something like in and, and it kind of helped. And I was just having these like ruminating thoughts about the future, having to play hockey again and, and to feel like how I do right now. And I was just like, I can't do it. And as the summer went on, like some of my symptoms, they they started to calm down. I started feeling a lot better, but I was still not right. And I was still like, I I would have the odd panic attack. And I remember like, I don't know if you ever driven through Kamloops, but the Trans-Canada Highway goes right through it. And uh, I remember driving car and I was just like, if I go off the edge, like over this bridge, like I'm quite okay with that right now. And thank God I never did. Like, I obviously, like I have a daughter, I have a wife that I, that I love and, and, and I would not do that to them. And at that same time, my wife was like a champ, uh, kind of taking care of me, taking care of the baby. Our baby was hard and colicky. And, uh, as the summer went on into the second year in Ingolstadt, when we started, I was starting to feel okay again, but that's when my wife's health went down because she was so stressed out about me. She was stressed out with the baby and uh, she had herself her own burnout and like, it sucked. Um, obviously, uh, no one wants to see their, their wife go through that and, and and have that the pain and struggles, but uh, that's where the, the story kind of goes in. You know everything kind of happens for a reason. Um, I ended up playing that year, my second year in Ingolstadt, and then I I didn't have any contracts, but I I signed late again in the second league in a town called Bad Nauheim. And you know my wife was still struggling with how she felt, and our our daughter was still you know she's a year fourteen months at that time, and and we were playing in a charity game. So, we were playing a second league versus the third league just to raise some money for the leagues. Um, and I took a hit, and I knew all these symptoms came back from my previous concussions. And I text my wife from the locker room, and I was like breaking down emotional because I mean, no one predicts, no one knows, uh, except for maybe Ray Bork, when they say goodbye to the game. Like, no one goes out on their own terms. Ray Bork won a, won a Stanley Cup. He's like, all right, that's it, perfect. Um, yeah. But you get 30 years old. You know, that I would just be playing in a in a charity game and I knew in that moment like that was it. So panic, panic sets in. You kind of think back about like, yeah, you know, I was sitting in the locker room and, and you just kinda of have this like flood of everything. Cause at up to that point, my whole life was hockey. I did everything yeah. from summer hockey, training for hockey, training for the new season, um, dragging my wife around to, you know, support me and and it's over like one hit well, yeah we panicked we, we had nothing i had no degree no nothing and it was it was scary
0: the classic life of a hockey player when that ends when you don't have anything else
1: everyone you know back home they all think like oh glamorous lifestyle you play a professional hockey and you know every year we're scraping by you know like we're we're doing okay like enough there you don't have to work in the summers and whatnot but you know, you start throwing money around for the extra doctors and, and the extra flights here and there, the extra holidays, and it, it goes quick. So, mm-hmm. after six weeks of being hurt from my last concussion, um, my team in Bad Nauheim basically kicked me out of my place. And I had a contract for the whole year, but after six weeks, you know, normally the, the German insurance will take over, and, and my contract was basically up. So, we moved in with, with my wife's mom in Regensburg and luckily enough she had a a big enough place and I was like what now and uh, at this point I was still feeling like shit and I started it was at the time when Crosby Sidney Crosby had his concussion problems and I was like there's got to be something I can do something's not right and I went and I just googled like NHL concussions Crosby thinking like hoping I would find something and uh, the first thing that came up was this charity called Stop Concussions And to this day, uh, the founders, his name's Kerry Goulet. He's, uh, he's awesome. He does like the, a lot of work in Australia. Um, he does like a hockey tour through there, just a, a huge ambassador for, for concussions and, and head trauma and people dealing with my kind of issues. And I talked to him and he was the first person that said, I understand how you feel. You're, you're not fucked up. You just have something that's fucking you up. And I was like, oh man, that's so good to hear. Like, and he's like, I know some people. I got going to get you in touch with the right people, and we're going to get this, you know, all sorted out. And we ended up moving back to Kamloops, packed up the family, moved into my place, and I tried just getting a quick job um, with one of my buddies, uh, doing some painting and whatnot. And after two days, like my symptoms would flare up, and I was like, geez, like this ain't this ain't going good. My wife didn't have a visa to work in Canada at the time. Um, but I had to get my treatment done. My treatment was in Guelph, Ontario, and I, I flew out there and thinking I'd be there for, uh, you know, a few days. I ended up spending, I believe, 18 days or so. Um, they took one look at me, did an, a, an exam, and they looked me in the eyes and were just like, this ain't good. I was fortunate enough to, uh, to get the proper help. My, my vestibular system was out, um, which meant, like, my... I had no balance. Um, one of my eyes was moving, uh, you know, a quarter of a millisecond slower than my other one. So it was making, I was playing catch up with my brain. My brain was working at 150%. Um, and that would cause me to be fatigued. You know, my brain was working too hard. And so I did a lot of, uh, you know, 3D computer exercises, strengthening the eye muscles, uh, balanced stuff. And um, Scott Holler at Guelph, um, what is it? Concussion, or shift concussion therapy. He was he was life saving for me too. And after about a week or so, I was like, I called my wife. I was staying at a buddy that I played hockey with before in Guelph while I was getting my treatment. And uh, I called my wife. I was like, I got to be here another ten days. Like, do you want to come out here with with our daughter Sienna? And she's like, Yeah. And I was just pumped with how I felt. I never had that much energy for the the last three and a half years I never had that energy and um they came to the airport and I was just like you know super ecstatic to see them and then uh we go to find my car and it took me an hour and a half and I was like (laughs) wait a minute wow Uh, yeah I'm still pretty pretty messed up but um that's when things started getting a little bit better Mm. and that's was kind of the 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 hockey part up to that point and Mm. um yeah, and then it goes into the to the next thing. Um,
0: well, let's want- hold on. There's some stuff on unpack there, bro. That's um, pretty. It's crazy because oh, concussions are such a strange dynamic. Because you know, just when you're telling me that the symptoms that you got, you know, I always wonder: Did I get the symptoms that I had from the same thing? And I just never realized it because the thing is like, I look back and I look, I look at the headshots that we got, you know, I only got to junior a, but I still got punched in the face, like in training camp, like, you know, hit my head down, you know, a lot, you know, I did like, I mean, we fought bare fist, bare, you know, and I think back to that as, as teenagers, like specifically, I remember seeing you at Spokane's camp and I'm just going to rewind because that camp, I remember it's just, everybody's like fighting and it's like setting up fights. And that's just the way it was back then. And I think about teenagers doing that. Like we're just kids, man. And we're just, we're fighting to, to make our spot. And it's just the mentality of thinking that that those hits to the head aren't going to have some sort of effect. And yeah. being part of the game, look, I love fighting. I love all of I grew up headshots, hit him with his head down. But now in hindsight, I look back, I'm like, it's fucking crazy. It's crazy. And like, I just remember the programming of like the coaching and how none of that was talked about. It was like, oh, do you have a, if you have a headache or you're dizzy, okay, just, just wait until it goes away because you can't see it. People think it's nothing. Right. And that's what I wonder is like, for you, when did it, did you ever feel like, I'm sure you got some big head headshots playing, headshots playing in the dub and playing for Spokane. Like you must've had lots of tilts, lots of, did you ever feel anything at all as far as like hard shots to the head in junior and then after, or was this just something that subtly came on later on?
1: No, I mean, I remember, that we call it like getting your bell rung, right? You yeah. Like, just get like you're 16 years old playing in the western hockey league and there's guys in the league that are 20 and i believe my first fight was against a 20 year old heavyweight
0: yeah and he
1: punched me off my face at 32 pitches they had to hold my nose back on i was like jesus I was like, that had to be a concussion Did i think at the time when my eyes were like shut for a week and i had a headache and i was like no i just got my nose punched off but uh you know when it, you, you look back on it and i was, it was a conversation i have now with uh a lot of hockey players, active hockey players. And, and when they were diagnosing me and my concussions, they were saying like, every time you see stars, that could be a concussion. So just think about that. Yeah. You get hit and it doesn't even seem like much. And you're just like, you know, you're a little woozy and you and, and your eyes aren't right for a few seconds. They say, okay, that's a head trauma. And they're just like, you could have anywhere from like 10 to 20 concussions. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, scared. man.
0: It, it makes me think like how many, how many of us, I mean, realistically, anybody that played hockey, played junior, if you had to fight, if you had to hit, like we've all had some sort of concussion. It's of fucking crazy when you think about it. Now, when I look back, I'm like, wow, like there could have been so many things that, you know, because I suffered from anxiety and, and all this crap. Well, I did a lot of after hockey ended, a lot of drugs and alcohol, which definitely didn't help. But who knows if it might have sped it up from the hockey injuries. You know, and this is the first time I actually have really thought about, wow, maybe that started in that place, you know? I
1: found, like, I, I still, to this day, I, I deal with, with symptoms from my concussion. Like, if I look right, I have double vision. Um, I got sleep problems. Like, if I'm sleeping four and a half hours in the night or five hours, that's a good night you know, I, there's the odd day where you just, you need to crash on the couch and, but I, I've learned to, to cope with it. It doesn't you know work out, but I can even watch my heart rate. You know, if the heart rate gets too high, it's like, okay, um, I'll, I know I'm going to pay the price for a couple of days, but I've learned to, to, to cope with these symptoms now for, for eight years. And it doesn't, it doesn't slow down my life, but I know so many people that it has. And, and that's where, you know, they can treat the concussion, but they don't treat the, you know, the underlying issues, those anxieties, the, the depressions. And, and it, it, it's scary. so much For me, so much more work needs to be done. Um, you know, people in the hockey world, they, they just treat it as a business. You know, they want to win. They want a product that wins. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter really who you are, except for a handful of, of superstars. They're just going to find the next person but they don't realize like they're, they're affecting our, our, our life and hockey, you know, you only play until you're 35, 40, if you're lucky and you still got a lot of good years left and to struggle and deal with, you know, that, that crap and, and without having the proper, proper treatment and proper, you know, concussions are for me, they're so, every one that I had was different and every one I needed a different treatment. And sometimes I was just emotional. Sometimes I was irritable. Sometimes I, had vision issues sometimes I just had a headache and um, you know layers to it that you know you got to tick the boxes and make sure you're you're mentally good to go and that you're physically good to go and that your balance is good to go and you know you're just you're not scared you know
0: yeah and you you think back of like a lot of the fighters you know in the NHL who had who ended up killing themselves or ended up whatever whatever happened them dying and i you know it's you get enough hits to the head man it messes with things yeah. you know like you're you're these guys are paid to go and you know be enforcers and i know the games changed a lot now it's just like these guys go out and just get their heads beaten in And you wonder why they end up making these bad choices later on, you know? Like it's, it really messes with you.
1: I was, uh, I was, you know, I was fortunate enough, and and rest his soul, to be next door neighbors with Derek Bugar. I was just
0: gonna bring him up, man.
1: And uh, we were, we would drive to the rink every day in Houston. We kind of came into the league at the same time, and talk about like a a teddy bear, and talk, talk about a guy that if he got mad. He is the the scariest human in the planet and the toughest hockey player that I've ever seen. I remember him like just palming a helmet and just ripping it off a guy's head and then like throwing it on the ice and like one punching a guy. I was just like, oh my god! But then you get away from the ring, and and he was just you know an easygoing guy. But him being my neighbor, it was just it was common at that time. And and yeah. go and you know my shoulder. Hey Doc, my shoulder's sore. Yeah, here's a hundred Vicodin. All right. So I got addicted to pain pills playing in the A and we sit there and watch a movie. Next thing you know, you're having a couple beers and I mean, and then you go to the bar and then you black out and you're just like, wow. Yeah. And you don't even know because the doctor gave it to you. Right.
0: And you trust, you trust that they know, but really they don't know shit. Most of
1: them. don't know shit. And then you just see now there's a huge case about, you know, going on and about what is it? Oxycontins and, (laughs) and there was an $8 billion lawsuit. And you're just like, man, like, what, what about our health? Like, what about our livelihood? And, and, uh, you know, Boogie and I, that, that summer after our, what was it the summer before our first season, Minnesota sent him and I to uh, Danbury, Connecticut, just outside of New York city. And like, we got to know each other really well and we shared a room for three and a half weeks doing power skating. Like, you know, we went up to the Empire State Building and, and we're standing there and, you know, I have still have a photo of the two of us. And at that time, we're like, we're on top of the world. And then, you know, uh, life goes on. I go to Europe, he goes to the NHL and you, you lose touch, but you just look into his eyes and you just see the, the loneliness and the sadness. And you're just like, man, like it, it broke my heart when he when he passed
0: away yeah i bet man what happened i um i uh, used to work at this earls in downtown vancouver and um rick Ripon used to come in yeah and he used to come and he used to sit down and man i remember what he used to eat and everything and you know he you never never thought anything bad you know but he he was the a guy that went out there and left it all out there and you know, just made that decision as well. And it's, it's so sad, man, because, you know, maybe, maybe these guys, if they felt that they had someone to talk to, like, like maybe if there is more of these conversations five, 10 years ago, when this happened, maybe they'd be like, oh, I'm not alone here. Because a lot of times you think you're alone. You think I'm the only one going through this. I don't want to look weak. I'm this tough guy and it's better for me to just check out than it is to reach out to somebody.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was for me personally, like I'm so lucky that, you know, I have understanding family and a supportive family on both sides. um, My wife's side and my side. And there was always people that, that I can talk to and I can, you know, my wife would go through a wall for me. And for that, I'm forever thankful and grateful. And, and a lot of people don't have that, Mm. you know, I was lucky to have the family. I was lucky to be in a situation where I can reach out to the odd friend and, and just let them be like, hey man, like, I don't feel good today. Don't mind me. Like, it's not because I don't want to be here. Like, I just don't feel good. I'm not going to be very social. And uh, I had that, but some guys don't. And when you're alone for too long, that's when the thoughts come in. That's when the, 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 you know, the ruminating thought process, which is, which is dangerous, Uh, you know, goes through people's brains. And I I even found, too, like, since my concussions, like, I am easily addicted. I'm an addictive person. Like, I have an addictive personality. Like, um, it's either I'm completely off drinking or I have a drink every night type thing. And before that, um, before my concussions, like, did I need alcohol? No. Did I find it as a coping mechanism when I was playing to, like, just sort of, like, Take all the pain away yeah like I was drinking a bottle of red every night or whatever it may be and
0: it's a slippery slope it's so easy
1: yeah and you just think uh, just a couple drinks just a because couple
0: bro drinks. like we have this trauma this you know like yeah. we store trauma whether it's like emotional trauma that we went through as a kid or later or it's trauma in our brains or our bodies like whatever whatever we can do to ease that right? If we're going through anxiety and pain, like I know, like I've struggled from anxiety and, 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 fear and all that. And it's like, fuck man, when I found alcohol after hockey and I, well, before, during hockey, but like when hockey ended and I realized like how easy it is to tap out and escape with it, to not have to feel, it's very easy to get lost in that. It's very easy.
1: Totally. And I did that. And like, you know, and to uh, to this day and age, like to to, to now, like, I, it's something that I have under control. It's not something that that dominates my life. Do I enjoy it? Um, having a nice glass of red with dinner, yeah, of course. Yeah, well, you're in
0: Germany, and the beer is pretty much like drinking water.
1: I live uh, a hundred yards from one <laughs> of the like an a, an old monk brewery from, you know, it's a thousand years old, and it's, I'm there all the time. Yeah, but uh, you know it's kind of interesting how you know I said before how things happen and and life plays out. So when my C's career was done, and when was that? 2013, 14. Uh, we ended up back in in Regensburg, living with my wife's mom in the basement, trying to figure things out, and and my wife was still dealing with like you know her her burnout and stuff, and. I was trying to figure out my concussions and we were just in a, in an overall shitty spot. Like we had no money coming in. And, and I was like, okay, like I'm going to pull some of the savings out. And there's this wellness resort in Austria and they deal with like mental, they had a burnout spa and you go there for a week and they put you through all the, the, the testing and, and, you know, coaching and everything that you need. And my wife went there and kind of, learned a few things and and got better but the person that was you know that she was working with um talked about this school that's just down the road um in university of salzburg which is a big university and uh yeah they run this mental coaching program and my wife's like i never really thought too much of it just like that's pretty interesting and then she came home and um at that point the insurance here in Germany, they recognized that I actually had a concussion and I had, you know, post-concussion syndrome. I had some, some issues that can't be reversed that I'll have to live with my whole life. And they were going to pay for job retraining. And I was like, Oh man, like what does a guy do that graduated way back in one didn't pick up a really a a book since then? Now it's 2014, 2015. What do I do? So I was like, you know, do I want to be a, get into to fitness, I've always liked working out and staying healthy, or do I want to get into nutrition? Do I want to get into to coaching hockey? And uh, my wife's like, why not that mental college from University of Salzburg? I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my German's not that good. Uh, you know, it's, I, I don't even know if that's for me. And we ended up talking to the, to the director of the entire university and he was a huge sports fan huge hockey fan and they set it up in a way that i'd have to go there for the classes obviously i'll be in german and my german's good now like i have no problems with it but uh i was able to do like my my thesis and all the tests in english so they were awesome for me so i ended up going and i remember like the first how it worked is you'd be there for a week then you'd be off for like two months and at home but then you'd have like you know, practice clients and you'd you'd find someone and, you, and the couple interventions that you would learn, you'd you'd practice on these people, and you'd go give feedback and come back for another week. And the first the first like two weeks of school, I would just sit there every day and like shake my head and like, what am I doing? And uh and then it like finally clicked and that's where I kinda had that aha moment about life and my hockey career. It was like the third week of school. Um probably like what would I say six, seven months into the program and all the, all the things that I was learning from school, I was just like, where was this when I played? I lost my confidence. I lost my jam. I didn't want to be on the ice. Like the older I got, I used to be a, you know, a a high draft pick to, uh, you know, I got invited to world junior championships, uh, the main camp uh, when I was 19, the day before I got broke my finger with an Ian white slap shot and, and Nathan Horton took my spot. So I missed out on it, but Um, but like, I I was this player and if you played under twenties in Canada, like they remember you. And, and I remember just thinking back on my career and I just lost my jam, lost my confidence. I didn't want the puck anymore. I wanted to like, I used to want to be a player. I used to be a player that played with the puck and made plays and was offensive. And I was learning all these different interventions to, you know, build confidence and get over mistakes and regenerate properly and and have the right mindset and and work on yourself because mm-hmm. i was always you'll kind of learn as <laughs> it's, it's the same with i coach hockey now and the players are never at fault it's always the coach or it's always the teammate and they're all like pointing fingers <laughs> but they never just look inside they never look internally and be like Make ownership yeah can I, can I do something better like i want to play first line well then fucking do something like Put in the work. Show yeah. me. And they're was like, uh, and then they just want to take the easy way. And, and that's when I, with schooling, I was just like, man, like, I, I, this is cool. This is like, where was this? Where were the, the sports psychologists? Where were the mental coaches when I was playing? I had none. And uh, that's kind of where I transferred into kind of life right now. Um, I coach hockey. It's my, it, it's my full-time job. Um, it's obviously weird right now with the whole COVID thing. We've had games canceled. Uh, we're just chipping by. But as soon as COVID kind of started, I had this degree. I graduated in, in 2018 and then, you know, COVID started. And I was like, now's the time. I need to do something for you know, for me and for and for what I'm passionate about and, and helping other people and and that's when I found in my own company. And, you know, you're in, in lockdown mode. There's nothing really going on or, And I just chipped away and started building like what I thought was a, a program that hockey players need mm. program building resiliency. Um, and, you know, it's, it was something I, at first I was like, what am I doing? Where am I going with this? And and then you know you start putting in in the time and and you see like the value of you know you listen back at yourself and at your recordings and, and all the charts, and you're kind of relearning all the things you learned in school and you're just like, this is helpful, this is like value to people and and then at the same time, started coming in uh, doing some individual coaching and i um it's actually funny right now i'm I'm doing more coaching with people outside of hockey, and it actually brings me a lot of joy like i yeah like for hockey players everyone has their own story too and you can relate at the the same like hockey lingo and you can you know they can talk to me like one of the boys um that part's fine but when you have someone that's coming to you that's you know got an eating eating disorder or has like you know um sex addiction or something in an unhealthy way Mm. or you know so, many, uh, that challenge for me and, um, and the results of just doing those individual coachings is, uh, is fascinating and it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, because a lot of them are the same lessons, regardless of the, the thing that they're doing, the action that they're trying to um, fill the void with. Yeah. A lot of them are the skills that you're teaching the hockey players are pretty transversal to everybody. And my question is, let's unpack under the bucket a little bit, okay? Like, if you can look back now at young Chris or young Lance growing up, going through, what are some of the things that you would do differently now as a coach that you can see now? And what are some things that you notice as being a common um, mistake that is being missed in the process?
1: yeah i think like you look back and, and you see kids too now and and a, a big part of it is that uh it used to be you can yell at the kid and he would just expect them to do it and most of us did you know and, and people were
0: yeah i got that. screamed at man like that was how i like there there was you
1: just learned like i remember with with Bangkok, when i was 16 um, valuable lesson in my playing career, but I got to the, I had the puck and I was skating to the, to the red line to shoot it in deep. Someone blocked it and went the other way. And I went back to the bench and he's like, you know, get the fucking puck in. I was just like, I fucking tried. And then he ripped me an asshole, kicked me off the bench. He's like, that's the last time you ever talked back to a coach. I was like, give him shitless. But I learned a lesson. Can I do that now? No. So I, I think the biggest thing for me is I, you know, I have to create these relationships and trust. So I create, you know, I, I have a list in my locker room and I want to make sure that by the end of the, the practice week that I'm speaking to every single person and I'm asking them questions that have nothing to do with hockey. Mm. And I want to make them feel comfortable. I don't raise my voice. I'm like, I talk to my players how I want to be talked to back. Um, you know, we see eye to eye. I'm not, like, at the end of the day, yeah, I do have the last final decision about who plays, who goes on the ice, and who does what. But for me, it's like, instead of yelling, let's find let's find a solution. Let's find, like, let's give you three goals for this game, three things for this game that you need to work on personally um, that are going to help you be a better player. And for me, like, it's that open-door policy. Whenever I go knocking on, on certain coaches' doors and be like, hey, let's sit down, let's try to figure this out, I'd usually get told to go in there and then get yelled at for 30 minutes and i'd feel like crap for a week um so it's just more or less like getting to know how these players tick how far you can go with them maybe someone needs to be yelled at but it comes from a good spot
0: yeah you know? a place of love not fear
1: so I'm, I'm i'm a little harder maybe on the on the odd person but it's coming from yeah it's coming from it, that i care you yeah. know it's understanding what you can do with certain people and and that transmission and, and, and relationship. And I think that's, that's my thing. it's changed. And like the, the hockey is, it's changed. I try to create like a, a positive, fun atmosphere. And and from my three years now as, as a head coach, uh, it's been successful for me personally. It's been successful for the players. Like, my first year we moved up a league, you know, we won the championship. And last year um, it was the, the most success that they ever had in the last 12 years. And, and my GM is like, uh, I wouldn't say like, he, he's a harder guy. Like he's, he's passionate. I'll give him that. Like he, he just wants things to go so well. And he, and, and he's just like, sometimes he just, he, he's the one that's like got that piss and vinegar. And I'm yeah. just like, Hey, I'll calm here. And we kind of balance yeah. each other. Pretty well that way like um but it works for me um i don't know if i can do this at the, the you can't coach like this at the nhl level well,
0: this is what i wanted to ask you is that like okay thing like things have changed though i mean even in the nhl level i feel like because you know the babcocks of the world there's only so much people will take from that style that fear based coaching. And I think it had its purpose. I mean, I had coaches like Terry Perkins and junior, I had like scared me into doing things. Right. But that's, I think, I think the beauty of it is like having a balance between enough, enough to like give a kid a kick in the ass to like want not to want to work hard, but not from a place of like really just scaring them into doing something you know, in a manipulative way. Like you really have to see, get these kids thinking about it in like a vision. Like, you know, why are you even here in the first place? You know, like what are you going to do when, like if hockey doesn't pan out, like the the reality is there's other opportunities that can come from hockey, but like, we're not taught that. Like, I remember being like, if you don't make it, if you don't make it pro, if you don't get a scully, then you're nothing. Then it's like, but the conversation that should have happened was, you know how many skills you're going to learn? You know how many people you're going to meet? Like there's still an opportunity outside of the game that can open up a lot of doors. And now I look back, I'm like, wow, I'm so grateful for what I learned in hockey because that shit can't be taught anywhere else.
1: Like that team atmosphere. How many yeah. people like I'm a hockey player right away, like they work their balls off They're especially like the leaders that you have on your team. These guys are coachable. They're adaptable. They can... You know, they, they just want to come and do things right every single day. Like the good pros and I, like I would hire them on any day of the week for any business. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy.
0: Now, hold on about like, I'm going to go back to like the coaching nowadays in NHL. You said that you wouldn't, you don't think that would work, but what do you say when you agree that it's almost like the new NHL is more towards that style? Like, I don't see it. I, I, my, my personal opinion is like the Babcocks of the world are getting phased out, right? Excuse or would you? what would you think about that?
1: I would, I would fully say that. I would say that they, they can be more demanding. And I think like, you know, there's, there's coaches like Gerard Gallant or like Coach Q in, 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 uh, in Florida right now that they are player coaches. The guys love they'll go through a wall for them but they're going to call you out on your bullshit, you know? So like, yeah. I don't know if that is, if that is the right way and they, and they do have success, but like for me, I, I think that there's, you have to hold players accountable.
0: It's a respect. I think it's like a, yeah. it's like a mutual respect.
1: But for me personally, I would never do that at a yelling screaming Tortorella way. Yeah. I would do that in a way where it'd be like, all right, let's talk this is our private meeting I'm not going to embarrass you in front of the team but we're going to talk one-on-one I don't like your game right now this is what you're doing wrong this is what I need you to do and if you're not going to get better then there's going to be someone else that's going to take your spot let's see how you go. like you know and, mm-hmm. I, I, I'd, I'd have that. and then I'm honest um, and hopefully they have respect from that too because a lot of times you don't get the honest answer they just say hey you're a, like hide or pick up your fucking game. And it's like, I think I'm going good, but what do do I need to do? Like, no one's telling me what to do. And, uh, and it came with, with, from like above here. And I just felt like, you know, they were so far above me in in power and I just felt like this little peasant. And, uh, I I had no respect for a lot of my coaches. because They didn't respect me Me either.
0: I I remember, I remember growing up, dude. And I, this just came to my head. So I kind of want to tell the story. I remember it was always really hard for me to hear a drill, to listen to a drill and then be first. I don't know what it was. It's like, it might've been like a learning sort of disability or something, but like I would always move to like third in the line. I would never go first because I remember when I was a kid and making a mistake in a drill And just getting fucking humiliated in front of everybody and screamed at. I remember I was like eight years old playing in Edmonton. And dude, like that stuck with me for so long. And that is like something as well where it's like that. I don't like that. I don't know that that fear of like not wanting to do a drill because you're going to get embarrassed in front of your team. It's shitty, man, and that happens a lot. And I look, there's probably a place in time for like kids that aren't paying attention. But I remember that used to I used to be scared shitless, man, if I ended up first in the line, and I was like, fuck. Even in junior hockey, man, I'm like, I don't want to be first because like I can't process drills. I have to see them first. I yeah, have to I, see it done first.
1: That's crazy. Like it's <laughs> um, usually as the season goes on or the like the years go on, you always have that one person too that is the drill buster and then you, <laughs> yeah. have, you have the guys that are you know they, they want to start the drill and then sometimes if you have a drill buster that's sleeping at the board and the drill, the guys in the team will put them up front just to have a laugh right yeah but i i remember that too like when i was playing junior and i was playing pro like being a rookie or a younger player you're just looking you're keeping your mouth shut and you're observing everything and and you're you're making sure you're following the board, but you're also letting the, the veterans go first. You know? And that was my advice. But like, yeah, there's some players, maybe you were just one of those guys, and eh? you just couldn't be the first guy to go. I,
0: I just, I couldn't absorb, I couldn't absorb information. It was like, if someone, I had to see it first. I was terrible at doing like power play drill. Like I had to see it first. And I was always like, it always gave me fear to go first because I knew I'd get screamed at. Even if I was paying attention. I just couldn't comprehend seeing a drill drawn out unless I yeah. saw somebody doing it. And that might have been something I've been living with my whole life. I don't know.
1: You know it's, it's funny. Like, they're going away from like, the board work. It's like, it, it is old school. And nowadays, like, coaches are like, okay, we'll show you on the board. And then we're going to walk you through it on the ice. And maybe we we're going to use like, a 3D video app and and show you in 3d motion how this drill is broken and broken down and, mm. and then you're seeing different angles um maybe it's just one of them's gonna gonna create that better engram in your brain where it's gonna you know you're, where you're gonna remember what it is and some people if they just look at something it's like me if i read a, a a book the first page sometimes like i gotta read it again but if i watch something
0: yeah
1: i'm gonna remember that a little bit better But everyone has their own like you know their own issues and things that they can work on to, to help their memory so to speak. i think
0: i think that's part of being a good coach too though like yeah. i think part of being a good leader is identifying the strengths within your your squad and knowing mm-hmm. like which buttons to push and what not to but like again like you said if if you can tell that it's gonna really mess somebody up, because I've I've been embarrassed in front of coaches, and I've just wanted to been like, "Fuck you," the rest of the year. I don't like you. You're you know, and I think the the master coaches are the ones that can really see the gifts in each, pull them out, get them to shine in their 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 superpower essentially, right? And I think part of being a good leader and a coach is being able to identify that, right? Yeah. Like that's. Isn't that, would you, like, would you agree? I mean, if you're leading a, the charge, like you want to pull the best out of all your team.
1: Yeah, there's a, I mean, for me, like I surround my team with good, good people. And I think that in my, I've been on this, this is my third year at the same team. And I've made some difficult decisions to like, you know, fire a guy, get rid of a guy, um, first line guys, because they were problems. And I wanted a team that like, you know, first of all, good people, you can work with them, leadership. leaders you can work with them and and if i see something i have such a good leadership group that that runs my team that controls my team and i basically coach my leaders my leaders coach my team and if i see something on the outside like uh you know like maybe it's a a guy that's struggling a little bit i'll be like and and you know a couple guys you know hockey like you're gonna throw a few chirps and you're gonna make fun of of someone if they're not pulling their weight but i'll be like okay have my my leaders in and be like listen like I'm going to talk to this guy, but I want to make sure the locker room is building this guy up Mm. and we're a team. We need everyone pulling on on the same rope and, and it it can't just always come from me. It can't always just come from, you know, uh, the upper management, but I got to make sure that the leaders on my team buy into my system and they're slowly bringing in everyone else so that, you know, come playoff time, we're a team. Yeah. We got on board and it doesn't matter if you're like, you know, the awkward guy or the guy that messes up the drill, like, you know, we, we, we want to find a spot for you where you feel comfortable and safe and, and I'll give you all the tools to have some success.
0: I think that's important too. It's like that trust and safety, I think is, is important. And like, it's just, that's just lessons in life in general. I think everything that is taught, like you said, you can teach what you're teaching to anybody. Yeah. sports is just one area that it pertains to right and I think that these skills are really important and I think just the conversation and the awareness of just how how powerful these concussions man can can be like and 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 that it's okay to have these things and to have these feelings right and to talk about it
1: yeah yeah it's uh for me, like, I, I'm so grateful. Like it may sound stupid, but I'm so grateful for my concussions. Yeah. Like I'm thankful. Like for me, I, it made me think outside of the box. It made me think about like, okay, I, like it's not just about hockey. Let's worry about myself or like what's after hockey. And, and it made me think more about like my relationship with my wife and her going through the wall for me, you know, to, to basically keep me alive. And like, I only thought about hockey growing up, and this was like showed me that there's so much more out there. It, it led me to like, you know, I, when I was done playing, I hated hockey. I thought like this game that I fucking dreamt about, you know, bed and the whole, you know, I I wanted nothing to do with it. And then I was a, a year away, not doing nothing, and I just started volunteering with a, with a. A junior team here and I kind of just got like I always had this thing when I, I love being the first guy on the ice right after the Zamboni got on or like you know 6 a.m practice and and I love being the first guy and just like the wind in my face skating around on the rink and I had that flashback again like all by myself on the ice and I was just like man like I missed that and I'm like how how can I you know contribute to the game still be a part of it like I missed the locker room I missed that part but and that's where you know the coaching and I I volunteered coaching for essentially four years before I got a head coaching job Mm. made it my full profession so you know I, I put in the work there but at the same time too doing you know like my mental coaching stuff and it's uh it's 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 funny like I you know people talk about their why and why they do things and for me it's like my hockey players I want them to leave you know as a better player as a as a better person um, not just at the rink or but away from the rink as well and like i just want to help people like uh, there's something that rewarding feeling of just helping someone feel good helping them deal with a struggle being there if they're going through you know a family tragedy and that is the exact same my why is the exact same with like you know hockey coaching as it is with mental coaching and it, it's like you can adjust it to everything in your life. Like if I'm having yeah. got one else's life, it makes me feel good, man. Like I, I leave a coaching call and I'm just like, Oh, my day is so much better now. Like even if they, it was just one tiny thing that shifted in their mind. Um,
0: it's uh, it's, it's so rewarding for me. Yeah. Big time, man. Big time. Um, do you have a co- lot of conversations with like past hockey players that their careers have come to an end? And now they're kind of like, now what, like, is that, because that feels like a big concern to me because, you know, we, and we talked about this a little bit, uh, the other day when we were chatting over messenger is like where we, we get such tunnel vision into becoming this pro athlete. And even if you be, you don't become the, the pro, but you are pro for a while and then it ends, then what? A lot of people go through like, who am I now? I'm a nobody. I'm not making the money. I'm not, you know, on TV anymore. Like there's all these things, right? That really heighten the ego playing pro. Mm -hmm. And I think even if you're a a rock star or you get that, you shine up there for a long time and then it's over. And then it's like, now what? You know, how have you have you noticed that? Have you had these conversations with a lot of the hockey players? And and what is that conversation like these days?
1: there is a lot of like, yeah, I have contact with a lot of people and and a lot of friends and and there's the odd, you know, friends that we were so close when we played and, uh, you know, they retire out of the game. And and next thing you know, there's, there's family problems and there's divorces and um, there's people that are, are getting into alcohol because they're going, doing a corporate job nine to five. And they're like, what am I doing? Because like the hockey life, you're, at the rink for two three hours a day and then at night you're playing in front of 15,000 fans and you're getting out those endorphins and those neurotransmitters are firing and you're feeling great And now you have that same lifestyle nine to five punching the clock something that you've never done sat around at a desk their body's changing they're unhappy and then you know you have the I've had I've had wives reach out to me saying like hey can you talk to my husband mm-hmm. and I think it's an identity crisis I went through it a lot Boy. of players and you know and then there there's the odd player that you know you're you, you see them do well or they have like a family business or the people really they were going to school or something figuring out the next steps while they were playing and I preach that to everyone you know do something while you're playing you need like hockey's not very long you gotta you need a something to fall back on a plan B or a new plan A. And yeah. but it's you know there's there is more people and, and you try to like don't want to you don't want to step on their toes and, and say too much um you know, the odd couple where you know they're they're separated and we had such a great time together we traveled together and and you're just like well what happened and you know they're they're not comfortable enough to talk about it yet and and it's for sure from from leaving the game mm. and they're also like they're doing a great job i think in the in the nhl for example you know the guys that makes millions of bucks they have a full program set up for life after hockey that's awesome but for the east coast hockey players or players in germany for example or in europe is there a program set up no like are they gonna be like hey you're 35 years old uh you're done you've done well playing hockey are they gonna be like okay let's adjust it to the real world let's uh work on your resume, let's get you some interviews, let's find out what you're passionate about. Like,
0: there's no one doing that. I, I think about the NHL before. Like, the guys that we looked up to when we were kids, you know, and how it was. You know, like the Kevin Stevens and, and um, Chris Chelios. And when their careers ended, and, like, how much they beat up their bodies. And they probably really didn't get much when hockey ended. It's kind of like, here you go. And there was st- that was still the old narrative too that like you're a pussy if you don't if you'd say anything and it's uh-huh. like it's crazy to think about man like how rough the game was back then and how I mean now it's great that they're doing that for the players right it's great that they're doing that but what about those players that didn't make that much money all those years and like beat the shit out of their bodies yeah I think the
1: biggest thing for those guys is you just got to make sure they're not getting. Idle, stationary. Like they people yeah. say, like, made you know, say you made twenty million, or you made you know a couple thousand. So what? But yeah, they're gonna have the same feeling if there are There's only so much sitting around you can do, and so much watching TV, and so much you know playing golf. uh Maybe some guys can be like that, but eventually it's like okay, I need a passion, I need a purpose, just like you had with hockey. So like. You want to make sure that these guys are not idle you want to make sure that they're they're figuring out what they have for interests what, what what is interesting to them for example like you know people are you know my wife and i talk about this a lot I'm just like um if you like golf then do something with golf yeah show up there put your face there and, and be like start asking questions you know, how can you make a career being here at the golf course? Are you good enough to be a pro? Can you just do like law maintenance? Can you like be a, you know, in, in the pro shop? Like whatever. That even is.
0: like Chris Pronger and his wife are doing that travel
1: package thing, the, whatever it is. You're passionate about travel. Yeah. Do it. I mean, Yeah. Uh, you know, the, both my wife and I, like my wife is also, you know, self-employed and, and we spend a lot of time together. Um, we've promised to ourselves we'll never work a nine to five. For as long as we live and uh because we love that time just to be like you know let, let's go do the six months off or five months off in the off season let's just drop what we're doing and, and go adventure and travel like we love going to italy like we go to italy every single year and we will, like eventually i'm hoping to convince my wife to get some property down there and and uh but just traveling around taking the kids like i got two kids now and and they're you know disney fans and we've been fortunate enough to go three times and in Paris and, and any chance we get, just go mm. and not go into the world. And that was our choice for when we were thinking about like, what do we do? Like my, the hockey over here in Germany, it's a blessing. Like we don't play a ton of games. You play Friday, Sunday, um, the season's six months or seven months. So you're still getting a five months off every year. So there's, there's time to use. Like
0: yeah. it's,
1: and, uh, you know my online business is something i can i can be anywhere in the world just need a laptop and you know reach out to anyone
0: i love it brother i love it and you know under the bucket is such a fitting name <laughs> like, i think what you're doing oh. is great man and dude like it's only just the beginning there's just so much that can be done with what you're working on and man mad respect for you for taking that route because it's it's somebody needs to do it and you know what better guy yeah.
1: Well, I, uh, I just want to be there for like, you know, those tough hockey players like myself back in the day that were dealing with shit and they had no one to talk to. And there's the, the sports psychologist that comes in with like the, you know, that's 60 years old that has a suit on that maybe never even played hockey. And you're like, how am I going to trust this yeah. guy? And yeah. I just like, guy where people feel safe, they can, you know, get to the bottom of stuff. They're not going to be judged. They're not going to be criticized. I just want to help. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm new into this whole, you know, business game. Um, You know, it's uh, my wife, she's the one with two degrees and she knows how to run a business and all that. And I'm just piggybacking off of her. But uh, you know, even from listening for to, to, to your podcast, like that, Maxine Cunningham, like what she's doing, I'm like, man, that's like, that's on my list. I got to talk to her. Like,
0: yeah. Yeah. I invested in that company as well. And it's, it's really, it's powerful, man. It's powerful because, yeah, I mean to be able to monetize your knowledge, time, and experience in unique ways—it's kind of the new economy, right?
1: And I was like, I, I have something that I, I specialize in, or I have, you know, certain techniques, or you know, interventions where I'm changing people's self-concepts and making them value themselves or be more efficient, or you know, have a better self-image, um, and you know, it's value, it's value to someone else's life. And for me, I was listening to that. I'm like, that is so cool. Like I got it. That's on my (laughs) list of things to do now. Like it's, and I'm grateful for your podcast and, 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 you know, hearing her story and what she's doing and, and something that it's also you believe in. It's, it's super cool.
0: Thank you, brother. I mean, I appreciate it. And it's, it's kind of the same thing where, you know, I went through a lot of shit after hockey and it just, for me, I want to be able to give back the way I can and just, And, and it's just been a natural progression of just being able to share other people's stories tied in with mine. And, um, it's, it's been really healing for me, you know, and it's, it's made me really look back and I just, cause you know, our lives kind of unfold and it's hard to process like what's going on. And I guess having different people like yourself, like I've had so many different, um, different walks of life, you know, from pro athletes to authors to like there's so many different areas and it allows me to explore my own life, which allows me to heal my story because again, it's like we always feel like we're alone. We're the only ones that are going through this. And it's been for me to be able to have such a healing experience for myself and to be able to offer that to other people where if somebody's like, wow, I really got a lot out of that. That makes it all worthwhile. Yeah,
1: it's it's crazy. Like it's, it's just you know the the this whole covid thing too and it's you know i hear your story too like you, you know I, I don't know how, how uh, things happen but, you know your your dad passed and your brother um and and those sort of tragedies too and like i went through the same stuff this this at the beginning of covid like my mom passed away suddenly and i haven't even we haven't even had a funeral and it's just like man like hearing you and, and, and knowing like you have found ways to cope and stuff. And I've, you know, I'm, I'm still dealing with this process. I've, my dad's back home by himself without my mom and, mm. and to like, you know, have people like you that, you know, you just figure it out, talk about what helped, what worked. And, you know, I have a, a good family, of have great brothers that are, you know, we're, we, we're sticking together through this, but like, you know, you worry about your dad and I, because of COVID, I, I, I never even really got to say goodbye. And how's it gonna be when I get back home and I was so close to my mom. And this was like within two weeks type, type thing. And you know, it, it's, it made the last few months pretty hard. And like, I'm just like, you know, there's, there's those things that you have to deal with. And, and I, th- I think you were talking about on one of your episodes, like you think that you have things under control, and you're coping well, and all of a sudden, you know, no matter you you do something like you know, a meditation or whatever, and you something comes up, and you think about you know, your mom or whatever it may be, and you just like you get emotional, and you're like, okay, okay, yeah, it's there's there's uh, it's not there. So like you know, learning from you, even for me, is is awesome. Um, you know, to to help cope with it with a shitty situation. And
0: man, I'm so sorry to hear that. I didn't even you know we, wow, like. I mean, that just processing that alone with during all this time, I can't even imagine how hard that must've been,
1: yeah. how definitely. hard it is still. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, I, I felt like, you know, because I left home at such an, a young age and, um, my mom, you know, she, she always said like, I want these like independent, like resilient kids, you know, I'm going to throw you under the fire, go fall down, go get dirty, go break your bones. Um, but at the end of the day, I'll be here for you. So she let us do that. And she let us run around and, and, you know, left home at 16 and I'd come home in the summers and, and she was always there for us, you know, always there to like pick us up when we fell, but it, it, it helped me, you know, mold me to how I was. But, um, for me, like the, the situation of just how things went down, you know, like, uh, from like my mom passed away from with cancer and it was metastatic and it went from the, you know, it it was basically started in in the breasts and went everywhere within, and she found out two weeks, she went to the hospital and she's like, I don't feel good. And two weeks later, you know, she passed away. It went really quick. And, um, but I, because of COVID, um, I wasn't allowed to fly back. I wasn't allowed to like, I would, I would have had to quarantine for two weeks. I could have waved through a window and, you know, I think like, you're kind of frustrated about like how things went down but at least you know i was able to talk to my mom on the phone uh, and 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 have a video conversation and and say goodbye and it wasn't a car accident so you got to try to like you know mm-hmm. find the part of it and all the all the things that she did for me and, and all the things she did for her family and and you know kind of deal with it that way and it's it was horrible it was tragic but you know you try to find like the positives out of a out of a shitty situation. And and she told me that she didn't want me to fly back and, and that she was okay. And but uh, you know it's it's something that I'm gonna still have to deal with and when I finally get home and have a you know a proper funeral in, in Canada that's I'm sure I'm gonna have to to visit a whole new, you know bunch of symptoms and, and feelings and emotions and
0: Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't, it doesn't go away. It just gets a little bit easier to to cope with, but you know, so maybe what, what are some of the things the the, I, I guess the positive side of you doing the work that you do, you can take those things and apply them in your own life when you're going through these situations. So like, what are some of the things that you've done to get through that, bro? Because that's, that's, I, that's a really, really fucking hard situation. Yeah, I and mean, the fact that you're able to hold yourself together is like, I admire you, man, because a lot of people break down, but you can see that you have the tools and the mindset that you, you show up in your own life to show up and you're doing well. So what are the, some of the things you've done to get through this stuff, man?
1: I mean, for, for one, I am like a really emotional person, like my wife, like I'm the, anyone's going to cry is going to be me. Like yeah, I'm, I'm the
0: that. same way, man. I fucking cry all the time.
1: And uh, you know, I, I, I'm proud of it. And she's just like she laughs. But for me, like I for one, I need to work out, I need to sweat, I need to get out in nature. And for me, nature is just that, that calming effect. There's so many like metaphors for for calmness and strength and, and stability and aliveness and, and just going out there and get in touch with, you know, the forest is like something that I need um meditation, breathing exercises, just focusing on on me and what I need in that moment. Uh writing down, you know, like I'd love to get better at it, but just writing, you know, journaling and writing down the, the odd thought or the highlights that you're having in the day, focusing on those positive things. Um and then really just having like like yeah I played hockey for so many years, but I can count on four or five fingers, my actual like true friends you know, and I have a great core. I got three buddies back home and I, and, uh, and I got my brother, uh, both brothers and we're like a support team and I can call these people at any time and, you know, shoot the shit with the boys and just have like, you know, a conversation, let them know how I'm feeling, uh, break down if I have to. And, uh, there's no judgment. And to have that, I'm super lucky. Um, Mm. but there's, Almost just to, to stay present, you know. I don't want to be thinking too far into the future, you know, and, you know, the, what is it? The, the future's related to anxiety and the, and the past is related to, you know, attached to fears and, and whatnot. If I feel like I'm not right, I'll be like, okay, what do I need right now? Do I just need to breathe for a few minutes? Do I need to go for a walk? Do I need to just get out and about? And um, that has helped me. But I know, like, you know, it's going to be, it'll be weird. And I'm pretty sure like I have a whole bunch of coping mechanisms, um, from my studies. But when I see my dad, you know, sitting in his, in his retirement home or not, you know, in his, his place that he lives now for retirement at the shoe swap, uh, well, my mom is going to be like, you know, mm. and, uh, cause it's what I'm used to, but yeah. Connection, man. it's important. Yeah. Connection connection to other people yeah
0: oh brother this was this was powerful i uh i really appreciate you coming on and sharing your truth and your story man because i i really think what you're going what you've gone through and what you're going through is so powerful and (laughs) you know like you got to get yourself a podcast as well i think at some point brother like i um yeah man wow uh, where if we want to check out under the bucket and people want to learn more about you, where's the best place and how do we connect? We'll put it all in the show notes. Yeah.
1: Underthebucket.com is my website. And there you can you know look around, send me a message. Uh, you can, you can just send me an email, whatever it may be um, on Instagram. It's official, And like I said, it uh, just, you can always send me a personal message and I do my best, you know, checking in and, uh, any question can be answered. And then I'm also on LinkedIn under Chris Hyde. Um, spend a lot of time on there connecting with people.
0: You have a personal account on Instagram as well?
1: I do. Yeah. It's Chris underscore Hyde is my personal. Right. Yeah. All yeah. My business. Yeah.
0: Facebook, so, all that. People can stalk you. YouTube everywhere.
1: <laughs> I, I do have the odd video posted up on YouTube, but more like, okay, like I, I, I shoot something that I think is valuable. I'll put it there, but am I promoting it? Uh, no, but I do have a YouTube channel under the bucket that if people want to see the, the four or five videos that I posted that they're they're there and, you know, they can learn
0: something. Cool, man. Well, this will be on YouTube. So, you know, you can use it as well. And uh, I think this was a really powerful way of getting your story and um, just showing, you know, the openness of two, uh, you know, over masculine males growing up in the hockey world, you know, <laughs> I would have never <laughs> talked about this ten years ago, bro. I'd been like, bro, shut the you fuck know. up. <laughs> I know. It's,
1: yeah, it, it is it is crazy how much like for both of us we've grown up and we changed and we're not just like the locker room boys, eh? Like oh, man, would, the,
0: yeah, this stuff would have just not, but it's because I I was just so I was lost and yeah, yeah. I mean I I I always end bro with this last thing. And I know we've gone this has been a longer conversation, but I'm glad cause it's, you know, I, uh, I think it was really, really valuable, but always end with what is one lesson that adversity has taught you?
1: For me, adversity, it's a, it's a chance to grow. Like you can either take adversity and quit or you can grow. And when, you know, say you're, you're a hockey player and you had that speed bump and you went and dealt with it. You got through whatever that mistake was or that blockage in your game. And if it happens again and you've dealt with that adversity, it's going to just it's gonna be like a walk in the park the next time it happens. And so it's, it's, adversity to me is a chance to quit, walk away, quit or grow. And uh, yeah, that's my one, one theme or thing about adversity for sure. Beautiful, brother.
0: Dude, thank you again so much, man. Keep up what you're doing. This is this is awesome. Appreciate it. I'm
1: going to be checking in lots with you.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. Chris Hyde, everybody. Check out Under the Bucket. All information's in the show notes. Love you guys. Thanks, everybody. So make sure if you guys want to check out Chris, go to www.underthebucket.com. All of that is in the show notes. Also follow him. He's doing great things and this conversation is really something that I think is just getting started. I could see me and him having this conversation and us connecting and doing something, you know, collaborating in some way or shape or form down the road, which is really awesome. And I'm looking forward to, you know, also being connected to more, you know, athletes and and professional athletes who have who have these stories to tell because they're really important right? They're really important. And the more these conversations happen, the more we build awareness for it. And really, it's the acceptance that it's okay to feel these things. It's okay to have concussions. It's okay to have mental health issues. We all do in a certain way. And the acceptance and the, and, and the realization that we're not alone, that's what's important, right? It's when we feel alone is when things get dangerous and we make bad decisions. Super, super important. So check them out. Follow them on uh, social media as well. And you guys, if you got value, share this with somebody, share this with a friend. If you haven't, please subscribe on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like to watch it on YouTube, subscribe to YouTube. Much appreciated, everybody. Have yourselves a beautiful day.